0: One of the most important moments in the life of any academic institution is the appointing of a new president. It impacts everything about that institution as well as the future and where it's going to go. Usually, the final decision on hiring a president is decided on by the board of trustees or the board of regents, whatever the title is, of the university or institution. I had a unique viewpoint into that in 2009 when I was serving on the board of trustees for Columbia Seminary and we were in the midst of a search for a new president, and it turned out that one of the finalists for the position was Steve Hayner, a friend and mentor of mine who was in my small group. Now, even though the search was global, Steve had not applied for the job. He had been approached by the search committee who felt like he might be a, a really strong candidate, and they asked him if he would be willing to uh, be interviewed. Now, even though these searches are completely um, done privately and anonymously to protect the candidates who are considering the position, Steve did share it with the small group. He wanted us to pray with him in it. So I was sort of wearing two hats. On the one hand, as a trustee of Columbia, I was so excited about the idea of Steve serving as the president of that school. And yet, as a part of my small group, we were asking questions about, this is gonna be a really hard job. It's a really busy job. Is this good for your faith? Is this good for your marriage? Is this good for your family? In the end, however, both the small group and Steve and his wife, Cheryl, and the search committee came to the point of saying, yes, they believed he was called. A board meeting was taking place where his name would be announced and the board would officially vote. And the last small group meeting we had before that board meeting, we asked Steve, how can we pray for you? What are you worried about? He said, you know, the thing I'm actually worried about is the response of the faculty, now, see, Steve had been teaching on the faculty for years before that, and it's very rare for a faculty member to become the president of an institution like Columbia. And he said, you know, I love these faculty members. I respect these faculty members. But when they hear my name, because I'm a known quantity to them, uh, what's their response going to be? Do they think I'm the right person? Do they think I'm the right fit? Do they think I have the right gifts? And, and so uh, his concern was about their response. He said, you can pray for me there. That's the thing I'm worried about. That's the thing that's going to keep me up the night before. When he was leaving, he said, you know, Thomas, since you're going to be there for the board vote, we have to immediately leave because we don't want the faculty to hear about this appointment um, through rumor. And so after the board votes, we're going to leave and go announce it to them and I'm going to be there. And he said, I wonder if you'd go with me and sit and pray with me before they hear my name. So the day came and the, the board gathered and we voted in unanimously and with excitement, uh, approved Steve as the hire. But then the chair of the search committee and Steve and myself, we walked out the kind of side door and went to the, one of the large uh, academic classrooms where the faculty had all gathered to hear the announcement, not knowing that it was one of their own who would be announced. The chair of the search committee walked in to announce the name and Steve and I were standing outside in the hall, we prayed together and I could see the weight of this next moment on his shoulders. And as we sat there, we heard applause starting in the room. We saw the door open and with a smile, the chair of the search committee asked Steve to come into the room. And as my friend walked in, I heard the shouts and saw the hugs and the smiles and the clapping of the faculty members. And I saw the weight and the joy lift from my friend. And I remember how excited and thankful I was for that moment for him. We are starting this year in a series about habits, and the reason we're talking about habits is because when we look at the year to come, we are excited about the journey ahead. We think this is going to be a year of a reemergence from this pandemic, and we are looking forward to that. But as we said last week when we started this series, it's not going to always be a straightforward path as we go through this reemergence. And so it's gonna still be difficult for us to make lots of plans as we like to do in the new year. And so the suggestion that we made is, what if we think about how we position ourselves rather than plan? How do we position ourselves and our families and our church and our society in ways that when God opens doors of possibilities, we are ready to step through them, but we're always listening and waiting, positioned to respond rather than saying, on this date, this will happen in this way. Because I don't think 2021 is going to work with planning. We see this in the story of, uh, of Abram and Sarai and their call. They didn't have a plan in their mid-70s to go out into the wilderness and to become the mother and father of many generations. But God calls and they respond. This is what we want to have for, for each of us, positioned to respond to the call. And that's not a passive process. What we talked about is that the ways that we change our behaviors, the way that we get ourselves ready to and positioned to respond is by the forming and the building of appropriate habits. You really wanna change your life. Habits are how you do so. It's not by intentions, it's not just by planning. Todd Bolsinger writes that habits eat strategy for breakfast. Habits, eat strategy for breakfast. You can have all the plans in the world. If you don't in the, have the discipline to change the small habits of your daily life, nothing's gonna really change. And so at Covenant, what we've said is we want to be about the establishing of biblical habits in our lives so that we are positioned to respond to the call of God. We've been talking about this for years. The three habits that we talk about at this church um, are the habits, number one, of solitude, which we talked about last week. How do we practice the presence of God and individually invest in that relationship? Second is community. And third are habits of service. Like a three-legged stool, each of these habits needing to be practiced by all of us individually and all of us collectively. And today, we're gonna talk about the habit of community which each of us needs to be invested in. We see this in the text. We see that even though the call initially comes to Abram, it's not Abram's call. It's a call that he then embarks on, and indeed figures out with Sarai and Lot and others along the way. And it's not this that Sarai and Lot are spectators to Abram's call. They are partners, equally called with him. And especially Sarai, his wife, they are going to together in the years ahead have to wrestle with and figure out and, and, and seek to, to be faithful to the call of God on their lives. We love in our culture, we love in America, the idea of extreme individualism. These are my beliefs and my life and this is the life I'm gonna have. But the Bible doesn't promote that viewpoint. The Bible says that if we're gonna be ready to respond to God's call, if we're gonna live as people called by God, receiving the life God has for us, which is greater than anything we can imagine on our own, that we do so not as spiritual lone rangers, but we do so over and over again in community. You, each of us, we must build the habit of community, biblical community in our lives. So what does this look like? Well, I think what we see in the Bible is that there's kind of two different attributes that I would say are important in the presence of of biblical community that allows us to step towards call. The first is that it's gotta be a community of honesty. Where are you known? Where when people say, how are you doing, do you actually answer that question? Where when people say, how's it going as we struggle through 2020, as we go through the tumult in our world today, how is this affecting you? How is this affecting your marriage? How is this affecting your job? How is this affecting your dreams? How are you doing that? Who are the people that you take the mask off with and give them an answer? People that know how to pray for you, know your goals, know your hopes, know your dreams, know the things you struggle with, know your fears, and they stand with you in that wanting the best for you, praying for you, lifting you up. Doesn't matter if you can post something on Instagram and get 200 likes. It doesn't matter because if that's all that community is for us, there is a loneliness in our bones that will eat away at us. Biblical community where we can learn to hear the voice of God has to be founded upon honesty. And the second follows after it. A biblical community that allows us to hear and respond and receive the call of God to position ourselves. We've got to have pockets of community of accountability where we can have people who look at us and say, no, this is God's call in your life. I, I, I don't want you to give up on that yet. Or this is what I see going on. And I just like you to think about that as, as you think about the, the, the fork in the road in front of you. This is what our small group got to do with Steve Hainer as he discerned the process of whether he was called to be the president of Columbia. Honesty, when asked the question uh, at our last small group meeting, how can we pray for you? What are you concerned about? He could have just said, oh, you know, pray for peace in my heart as we go through this. You know, just pray that it'll all go smoothly, which are non-answers to questions that we give to people every day. He said, if you really want to know how to pray for me, it's the moment that the faculty here, that's the thing I'm going to be thinking about the night before. That's the concern of my heart. Thomas, would you be with me in that place? Letting us in. And a place of accountability. He didn't just come to the small group one time and say, guess what, I'm gonna be the president of Columbia Seminary. It's questions we had to ask together is what was God doing in his life? And you've got to almost hand over a certain amount of accountability, even authority to other people in your lives so that they can be with you as we discern. Discernment of call happens in community. It's laced throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. These habits, this kind of community must be present in your life. It's actually an interesting weekend for us to to have this question and this habit before us because this is a weekend where we remember the life, ministry, and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. There's so few people that have a national holiday in this country named after them. And I think it is right and appropriate that Dr. King is one of those people. But it's important for us, as, I think especially as people of faith, on this weekend to separate some of the myth that has been uh, built up around him with the reality. Like when you hear certain people talk, you would think that he was just this kind of this, this perfect individual that walked through life. He wasn't. No one it was except Jesus, and he wasn't either. And we've got to, to, to understand that so that he becomes more real and, and, and someone that we can almost interact with more than just the figure. We see that he's going to be referred to over and over again as a civil rights leader. Well, he was, but he was at his core, not just that he was a Baptist preacher. He wasn't just someone that had a really good dream and could articulate it really well. This dream was forged out of Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and most importantly, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we as followers of faith, even though it's more convenient in our world today to to separate that part from him in society and just say he was a civil rights leader, that's not all that he was, that's not the truth. He preached the gospel and challenged us to live that out in America. But what we also might think when we hear Martin Luther King described is he was this lone figure that he preached and spoke and millions just changed their lives and followed. But Martin Luther King was part of a community. In the image that's before you, you will see a figure to Martin Luther King's right, a figure that if you look at photos of him, especially during the Civil Rights Movement, you will see this person over and over again. His name is Ralph David Abernathy. Ralph Abernathy was a pastor that got to know Martin Luther King early in his life and the two of them became, in Martin Luther King's own words, the best and most trusted of friends. When Martin Luther King moved to Atlanta during the civil rights movement, he actually insisted on Ralph and his family moving with them because they were uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder. People said that Martin Luther King was the one that articulated the dream, but that Ralph was the one afterwards that gathered people together and said, now let me tell you how this is gonna work. You see, you've got to have both parts of that. Because if you only have Ralph Abernathy, the more planner, the administrator, you don't have the dream, you have a plan. And that's not going to expire anybody. i got a plan for what this is going to look like. But if you, if, you, if you only have the dream and the speech, then it's just going to be something people walk away from and go, that was a really great message. I hope people pay attention. The organization that they helped start, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, one of their coworkers, Terry Randolph, said this. They used to call them the civil rights twins, he and Dr. King. You wouldn't see one without the other. And for any, not only major, but minor decision, they consulted with each other. You never saw them, one without the other. And you never saw a decision made, large decisions or small, that they were not consulting with one another. I think what I'm trying to say is that that when you look at the habits that allowed Martin Luther King to step into the call with the enormous courage and the enormous leadership and the enormous faith that he had, you cannot see the call that he lived out without seeing that he practiced the habit of community. That if you looked at him and said, who knows you? Who knows how to pray for you? Who knows your faults? Who knows your dreams? Who knows your gift? Who's praying for you for all that God wants to do? He could have looked at you and said, I can tell you exactly who that is. Ralph David Aberneth. We must have this habit in our life. The backbone of this series and when we look at the Bible in this way is the idea that as Craig Barnes says life is meant to be received rather than achieved you don't have to figure life out we have to be open to the call and let it come we have to be able to hear it and without the habit of community we could and will miss it or at least not be able to walk into it with the sustenance that we need to have For some of us, we have that community and we need to build this year and arrange our calendars for our small groups and our Bible studies to to be there. We need to hold ourselves accountable to tell the truth and to be open and to pray for each other and check in with each other. We need to recommit ourselves to this habit. But the vast majority of uh, studies in America show that most of us don't have this. There is a growing loneliness and isolation long before COVID-19. And so if you click the link on small groups or if you go to our website under the Connect tab, there are all kinds of on-ramps for you to participate in, to help form, to help lead small groups, to get involved with Bible studies. There are on-ramps. And what I want you to hear is you are invited. You are invited to come practice this habit with us. And we look forward to the journey together. Hallelujah. Amen.